0: Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024.
1: Blade Runner 2049 has just been released in cinemas.
2: Every civilization was built off the back of a disposable workforce.
1: But I can only make so many. It depicts a world full of androids that are engineered to resemble humans. They're called replicants and their job, in theory at least, is to serve people. Often when people talk about artificial intelligence, they focus on the negatives. How robots might take all our jobs, how the machines will outsmart us, and if you're feeling particularly apocalyptic, how they might end up taking vengeance on all mankind. Today on Babbage, we're going to be talking both about what AI might look like in the future and looking at some new developments in the field today. I'm Tim Cross, The Economist science correspondent, and with me in the studio I have a panel of guests. Oliver Morton is a senior editor, and Jan Pietrovsky is a fellow science correspondent.
3: So Oliver, you've seen Blade Runner. Perhaps you could give us a quick but spoiler-free overview. Quick and spoiler-free. Blade Runner 2049 explores some of the ideas that are in Ridley Scott's classic, and I think one thing is that you have to going straight away thinking, is it does so absolutely beautiful. It's one of the most stunningly beautiful films made for a very long time on this sort of scale. And it tries to look at issues about what it is to be human and what it is not to be human. And also, and I think this is what it does rather movingly, what it is to be special and what it is not to be special.
1: And the vehicle for this is a future in which we have humans and we also have these bioengineered beings, these robots, whatever they are, called replicants, which are artificially intelligent. How accurate do you think it is in its sort of predictions about where such a future might go or what it might look like?
3: Well, I don't think it, or science fiction in general, is in the business of making predictions. But in terms of accuracy, I, I would say wildly inaccurate. And not least, the level of biological activity in the replicants is unclear, but they seem to be basically fully alive. They're not sort of like flesh over a metal skeleton, an endoskeleton. They are, as far as I can make out, in various ways fully human compatible. I don't think that's a likely way to make artificial intelligence. I mean, I think you could make bioengineered humans, but that would be a different thing. The AI role in the film is actually rather more taken by something that's not in the Ridley Scott original, which is a sort of holographic, true AI character. And that character, I think, is extremely well drawn. It owes quite a lot, I think, to the character voiced by Samantha Morton and then later Scarlett Johansson in uh, Spike Jonze's film Her. And that felt quite right because that felt like um, an artificial intelligence that was learning how to be the thing that a human wanted to have a conversation with. And that had a real sort of whiff of authenticity in a way that's sort of like super powerful androids don't.
1: So if that's one semi-plausible idea of where AI might go in the future, um, Jan, I know this is something you're interested in. How does it compare to what we mean today when we talk about AI?
2: Today, artificial intelligence, it's it's a moving goalpost, really. I mean, it's basically ever better ways of solving certain problems that humans would take too long to solve for any practical purposes, or perhaps would be unable to solve in the, in the first place. The way that I think about it very often is in terms of natural language processing or, or machine translation. When people started working on machine translation, they basically thought that, you know, you could, you could insert a set of rules which govern a particular language, and then the machine would take over and would just take one language and follow a certain algorithm with a set of rules and spit out a phrase in another language. And very soon that basically turned out to be completely useless because that's just not the way that natural language works. So after a while, researchers began to try and figure out a more functionally appropriate way of dealing with natural language processing and basically feed systems, which we now call artificial intelligence, lots of data about the way that humans use language and then sort of extrapolate from that how language might be used anew.
1: And you see, for me, I think this is one of the big differences is that we tend to assume in the future that we'll have AIs that look like humans and are sort of generally intelligent and do lots of different cognitive things. But what's interesting about the modern stuff actually is how non-general it is. And there was a famous chap called Douglas Hofstadter back in the 1970s, famously said that there may one day exist computers that are better than people at chess, but they won't just be chess playing computers. they will be machines that will play chess for a few hours and then get bored and say, hey, I'm bored of chess. Let's go and play po- and do some poetry instead. Um, and he was flat wrong about that. And w- what I think is interesting is that as we're starting to build you know, actual AI in the real world, it turns out... That the most profitable way to do that is to focus on very, very narrow problems, build things that really aren't like humans
3: at all. Yes, I, I, I think that's right. Though I think you're—I don't think you're quite right in thinking that people assume what AIs will be like in the future. I mean, among other things. Aside from people who know their Star Trek from their Battlestar Galactica, most people don't think about AI very much at all. And when they do, I don't think they assume the because I think they just know that that's the way we talk about these things, because it's the way that AI challenges us as humans that we most care about. And so it makes sense to sort of like personify that challenge in something human-like. But I don't think people really expect AIs to be like mechanical
2: creatures. I think I would be inclined to agree with Tim a little bit, and the reason is that we use the nebulous term "intelligence," which we basically use in common language almost entirely to refer to other humans. Sometimes we use it to refer to animals, but to sentient beings. And suddenly, we're we're using that same word with its old, sort of lexicographic load, to refer to something. That is not like humans or animals. So I think that there is a little bit of that. Just it's embedded in the in the very formulation that we use to describe it.
3: Well, yeah, and also the projection that we bring, you know, when we talk of animals. I mean, much of the intelligence of animals is something that we project onto them, any, rather than anything that we can necessarily say that we can show exists within them. And I, I think, you know, the the clear thing that's interesting about this is that AIs and computers offer us. Intelligence without sentience? You can, of course, do quite a lot with intelligence, even if it doesn't have
1: sentience along for the ride. And healthcare is one industry that a lot of people think will benefit greatly from artificial intelligence. And in fact, just this week, Onano Bhattacharya has written a piece all about a new search engine called Semantic Scholar. This is an artificially intelligent algorithm that scans scientific journals for obscure but potentially life saving research. And Onano has joined us in the studio to tell us all about it. Hi, Onano. Hi, Tim. Could you tell us how this project got started?
4: A semantic scholar, the Allen Institute for AI, has had up for a couple of years. But initially, they only had computer science and neuroscience papers up on there. What they've done now is add millions of papers from biomedical research. But in terms of the project leader, Marie Hangman, she sort of has an interesting story as to why she was motivated to head up the project. Part of the reason that she was motivated to do this project was years ago she was diagnosed as having stomach ulcers. Doctors prescribed a bunch of drugs to help ease her symptoms, but she felt very much that they were treating the symptoms rather than the cause. So she went looking online and she found some research indicating that these ulcers were caused by a bacterial infection. And so she finally convinced the doctor who hadn't heard of these findings or, or at least w- was not taking them seriously to prescribe her a course of antibiotics after which the infection cleared up and she's never been bothered by her problems again. What she wanted to do then is to allow anybody um, who has concerns to be uh, able to do so. And so she's turned artificial intelligence to that task. So is the idea that the AI
1: can guess from your sort of clumsy searches what it is you're really looking for and steer
4: you in that direction? Yeah, exactly. Um, So when you uh, do a search in Google Scholar, what you get is a ranked uh, list of research papers that might be relevant. But the way that uh, humans, even researchers, tend to search is they'll go in with a search term, and then they'll sort of dig and drill further and further down as they see papers of interest. They'll get further and further down into the detail. Uh, So uh, one of the things that Semantic Scholar does, which Google Scholar doesn't at the moment, is that when you put a search term in, it will display five or six related topics. Now I I tried this with stomach ulcer causes, and uh, when I put that into Google Scholar, I got a 1984 paper by uh, the two researchers who won the Nobel Prize, um, uh, reporting an uh, as yet unidentified bacterium may cause stomach ulcers. So in other that, words,
1: it gave you the original paper that sparked that whole line of inquiry that eventually led to this to, to the Nobel Prize.
4: That's right. Yeah, and and uh, that's kind of. Cool. Uh, And presumably that turned up because it's incredibly well cited, which is what Google Scholar thinks is important. However, when you put it into Semantic Scholar, the first term that comes up at the top is H. pylori infection. And that's the bacterium that we know now probably causes the majority of stomach ulcers.
1: So in some way, what Semantic Scholar does, and I guess this is what the name suggests, is it takes your sort of not entirely thought through human queries and tries to direct you to the knowledge you're actually looking for but maybe don't know yet
4: when you put the query in? It does so because the neural network that they've used understands something of the context of the words that you're looking for. They've trained the neural network using a bunch of data that have been produced by actual human researchers who've combed through a bunch of papers and marked up really important words in those papers and and the connections between them. And they've then trained up the neural net to be able to spot those sorts of phrases and topics itself uh, through an understanding of that context. So I think having that context behind it makes it quite powerful.
1: So in other words, this computer learned by watching humans what exactly it is humans tend to want to do
4: when they go and use search engines. Yes, or at least the output of humans who coded up research papers and produced the data that the neural network needs for it to to learn. So it sounds like Google Scholar might have quite
1: a competitor on its hands. Thanks for popping in, Onono. Thanks, Tim. What Onono has just been describing is a particular kind of artificial intelligence called supervised learning. And the key there is that it's humans who choose and filter the information that they give to the machine to learn from. This kind of training has had more famous outings, too. It was one part of AlphaGo, an artificial intelligence, that beat one of the world's best players, a man called Lee Sedol, at a board game called Go. For today's game, Uh, in terms of content, it was a complete loss for me. From the beginning, there was not even a moment in which I was dominant. That was back in 2016, and a year later, AlphaGo beat KG, the world's number one player. This week, though, there was another announcement from DeepMind, the company behind the program. They've launched a new version called AlphaGo Zero, and the key difference is that this computer program used something called unsupervised learning, which means it trained itself to play Go without any help from humans at all. Why might we want a machine that can
2: train itself? Jan? The very interesting thing that this sort of unsupervised learning can provide is solutions to certain problems that no human would ever come up with. Because when you think about it, if you feed the supervised learning algorithm some data which was authorized, as it were, by humans, that limits the sort of artificial inventiveness that you might suspect will occur if a computer starts from scratch.
1: And you actually see examples of exactly this if you look at how AlphaGo Zero learned. So it, it, you can watch it learn a whole bunch of concepts about the game that humans have already come up with. But if you read the paper, you'll also see it come up with new things that humans have never done before. Um, and by the same token, you'll also see it take much, much longer to recognise some concepts that are very obvious even to human beginners just because of the way the machine thinks. And, and it, you know, it thinks in this very sort of statistical way. It doesn't have the ability to do things that to humans come naturally, like look at a your, pattern on a board and project
3: it. Are you sure thinking it. is a good term there,
1: Tim? I'm not sure it's a brilliant term, but I'm not sure we have a better one. I mean, there's this, there's this sort of perennial Reckoning. question...
3: Yeah, or 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 calculating, or or or, or whatever. Reckons has a nice ambiguity. ambiguity. I think reckons. I think we should use reckons for what AI does. So yeah, I'm not convinced you necessarily do need
1: a new word because I think a lot of the time people look at what the computers do and think, well, this isn't what humans do, and that it must therefore be sort of different or inferior in some way or, or or something. I think most of the researchers that work on this are focused on the goals and the outcomes, and the truth is if you look at AlphaGo Zero's rating, because you can rate Go players by strength, it's much, much better than even the best human players in the world, to the point where if you had them play against each other statistically, you would never expect a human to win. So whether this thing is thinking, or whether it's calculating, or whether it's reckoning, it's not only arriving at the same place as humans are, it's actually arriving at at a better place than they are.
3: There's a very interesting point here about the machine not thinking or reckoning like a human, meaning you can't understand what its internal states are because its internal states aren't remotely comprehensible to you. And that doesn't matter for go. But if the machine's deciding, to take a tired analogy, if the machine's deciding whether to run over one group of people or another group of people, you really would like to be able to interrogate it as to how it makes choices like that. And that's a problem with having black box thinking, which is defined purely in terms of inputs and outputs and where you can't see intermittent stages. But that may be a fundamental thing about machines. And to some extent, it's a fundamental thing about humans, because though humans can provide accounts of their internal states, whether those accounts of their internal states are accurate, let alone causative, seems to me to be very open. I mean, people will routinely say that they have decided to reach for something after neurological measurements show that their arms are already reaching. The Humans are not very um, trustworthy on their internal state, so maybe in some circumstances you'll prefer a computer that just says, that's it, guy, I made the move. What more do you want from me? I'm a go computer, I make go moves. Go away, bother, bother someone else. And then it goes slightly like the end of Ferris Bueller. Just go, go.
1: I'm kind of sympathetic to Ollie's point on this. I think we don't know how the internal states of human minds work. Like, as as you say, you know, humans are black boxes to other humans. We have a lot of experience with them. We can make predictions about how people are likely to act in any given situation. And most of the time those predictions are right, and sometimes they're not. And it doesn't seem obvious to me why we couldn't necessarily treat AI in pretty much the same way. Well, the, the one
2: difference here is that we know how we think we act. We're often wrong, but we do feel that we know how we think we act. And we also ascribe moral value to
3: how people think when they act. We're rarely entirely consequentialist in our ethics. We think intentions matter to things. So it's it is strange because you know, this is the great insight in among all the dross and Freud, or a great insight, which is, you know, a lot of the time we don't know what we're thinking or how we're thinking. But we are very aware that we're thinking, whereas the AI may just be reckoning, you know, so like hear the click clack of the abacus. So we have a comforting myth for humans that that we think we know why we do what we do, but we don't have one of those for AI. That's certainly the impression that you would come out of watching Blade Runner 2049 with.
1: So given the complexity of even these comparatively simple systems that only do one thing well, I think it's fair to say that we're not going to see replicants knocking on our doors anytime soon. But do you think they're on the horizon at all? I mean, is there any reason why we might want to create a a truly human-like machine?
3: I looked at this a few years ago and I think the reason we'd want to create a truly human-like machine is we keep writing stories with truly human-like machines in them. If you talk to people who work in robotics as opposed to AI, you do not have to look very hard to find that they're inspired by science fiction. And you see this especially in the Japanese fascination with humanoid robots. You know, these choices are driven by stories that people have in their minds, and I don't see any reason why those stories are going to stop being told. So that would seem to me be the driver. Whether that would get you all the way to actually, you know, sort of like having a genuine Ryan Gosling, but we all know that Ryan Gosling's photoshopped anyway. There's nothing genuine there. <laughs>
1: So if I can play devil's advocate, though, a lot of the progress that has been made on AI has been made by big companies who can see, you know, an immediate dollar value in doing so, has especially it? recently. I thought oh, yeah, most, of the of
3: exper- the... most of the progress made by AI, I mean, some has been made by big companies, a lot has been made by universities. I mean, are you just talking about machine learning there, or are you talking about AI going back through to the 1960s? I'm talking about machine learning, which is the sort of okay. th- the big topic in, in, in okay, a- a- AI learning, right yeah. now. Okay.
2: Or, or by small firms, which are subsequently snapped up by large corporations.
3: The AIs would like us to think that this is what's
1: going on, certainly. But it does raise the question of, you know, we already have human-like intelligence. It's called humans, and we already know how to make more humans, and it's quite fun, and we're sort of biologically programmed to do it. So, even if we could develop a human-like intelligence, what actual use would we have for it in our society? I mean, I can see a use for a. a weird sort of alien machine intelligence that can attack problems that humans struggle with. I'm not quite so sure I can see a use for something that's essentially a
2: copy, a very expensive copy of ourselves. Well, one use would be perhaps to understand how human intelligence actually works, because as we said earlier, human intelligence is a bit of a black box to us, even though sometimes we feel otherwise. So if we created one from scratch and we're somehow able to track its progress, then perhaps that will tell us something about ourselves.
3: The other thing that comes out, I mean, if you have these vast unsympathetic intelligences of a different sort, it's not only really not clear that you need artificial human-like intelligence, it's also not clear that you need human-human-like intelligence, which isn't to say that there wouldn't be any humans, but a world in which humans are valorized not through their intelligence and that which it allows them to do, that would be an interestingly different, possibly very frightening world, depending on how humans are valorized.
1: If we don't really understand how they think, How easy is it going to be to build in the sort of checks and balances we might want to see to make sure that they do what we want them to do and in the sort of way we want
3: them to do it? Well, it's not going to be easy to do that and it won't get done because when you say we like that, you kind of imply that all humans have the same interests, but obviously humans have wildly divergent interests. And... By and large, the history of technology reveals exactly no examples of technologies being introduced that then went on to make everybody happy and nobody sad. Even the bicycle, often my favorite technology. But you know this will lead to disasters, just as all new technologies lead to disasters. There will be large amounts of human suffering for which this technology can be held to account. That doesn't mean it won't happen. Um, It doesn't mean it won't also produce some good. It might even produce more good. But the idea that somehow you're going to do something as fundamental as introduce new forms of intelligence into the world and you're going to get it right first time and it's not going to screw anything
2: up, that's just ludicrous. Well, the one thing we possibly need not necessarily worry about that much is – sinister motives because even though, as we've said, these things have some sort of intelligence or reckoning capacity, they need not necessarily have desires or emotions or things that guide us as evolved creatures which have basically been constructed by evolution to propagate. Those artificial intelligence um, algorithms need not have any of this. And therefore, at least on the sort of motive side, we probably don't necessarily have to worry about them at all. No, but motives we
3: don't have to worry about. But, you know, the lead that we put in petrols that poisoned the neurological systems of generations of children didn't have any motives either. It was just a mistake and and a bad use of technology that did a great deal of harm. And we're obviously going to see that with this sort of thing. That's true, but I suppose, on the other hand, it, it can't be a
1: bad thing that we're, we're thinking about this stuff now. It can't hurt to at least try and flag some of these problems up ahead of time. What do you think at home? Do you think the discussion on AI is biased to the negative, either by us or just in general? Do you think we should talk about the positives more? You can tweet at Economist Radio, or if you can't fit your thoughts into 140 characters, you can email us at radio at Thanks to Oliver and thanks to Jan for joining me. I'm Tim Cross, and thank you for listening. In London, this is The Economist.
0: Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit Bankofamerica.com bankingforbusiness banking for business to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America NA Copyright 2024.